Hey, 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 welcome to Critical Q&A, uh, our live stream edition. Let me make sure all is well here. There we are. All right. So, yeah, we're doing a special Saturday show. Things have been a little wild and a little crazy on the channel lately, I know, in terms of scheduling stuff. Um, my life has not necessarily been completely my own recently with all the real work, real world work that I've been doing in uh, with consulting and some other stuff. And so um, schedules have just been kind of a little random lately. And I apologize for any inconveniences or uh, confusions about all of this. Uh, I wanted to let you all know that it's looking very good, uh, very green light for Alex, uh, Postate Alex and I to get together tomorrow and record an after Scientology straight up and vertical show for this week. I didn't think that we were going to be able to do that because Tony and I were crossing paths, uh, you know, logistically again, right, travel wise. But Alex said, hey, I could uh, I could be part of that. And I was like, yeah, so we're going to uh, record that tomorrow and post that on Monday. Let's go ahead and get over to the uh, chat box here and uh, get that up on the screen. Um, there we go. Okay, good. Higher reality than actual reality. That's right. <laughs> Excellent, guys. Thanks for uh, coming around. I see the usual suspects and critics in the comments here. Very happy to see you here. And, uh, oh, let's get the chat set up so you can start throwing questions at me. I should have probably... I should probably set that up before we get the show started, but I always kind of, like, enjoy doing it while we're going. Ask me anything uh below this comment here all right start q a all right so now i'm looking at the q a box here as we do each week and so if you put your your questions specifically under the comment that i just posted ask me anything below this comment here uh, then I will see them and can start throwing them up on the screen and answering them. This is, after all, a Q&A show. I will let you guys know that I have been hot and heavy on the tone scale video work, uh, sweating bullets. You know, I always wait till the last damn minute on stuff. And I wish I wouldn't do that to myself, but I do. And so it's been really stressful the last week or two. <laughs> I've been like, ah, getting this whole thing done. I've basically put together a slideshow, sort of a, this, this massive PowerPoint that I'm going to walk you all through with some videos and stuff like that on it. And, um, and I think you guys are going to enjoy it. Anyway, again, that'll be Thursday. This coming up Thursday at 1 o'clock Denver time, Mountain Time, I will be uh, going live, uh, you know, unless... Um, I don't know, unless, you know, my, my cold dead hand can't hit the live button for some reason on Thursday, we are doing it. And I am very, very excited because I have a schedule this year that I am in very intent on following. And so far, it's been, it's been happening. Um, so just to remind everybody, this Thursday, the February 29th, will be this tone scale video. And um, what is it? It's January, February, March, April. <laughs> <laughs> Very good, Chris. At the end of April is the metering video. And that's when that's happening. Again, come hell or high water, uh, I am determined to have that completed and present that to you so that we can talk about the Scientology e-meter, debunk it, get it out of the way, tell you guys all about what it is, how it works, uh, show you how it works in Scientology. Uh, in auditing sessions, in security checking, confessionals, all of that. I, I intend on putting stuff together to show that to you guys. And I think that's going to be awesome. And with those two 
projects completed, that'll be it for Scientology-related content for me as a dedicated activity. I will be still talking about Scientology, of course, going on other people's channels and collaborating with people about Scientology or talking about my experiences with it. I'm never going to stop doing that. But as far as dedicated content on this channel, breaking down Scientology principles and and uh, the tech and all that kind of stuff, we're, 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 we're going to be done. Um, I am going to keep, of course, the weekly show with Tony so we keep in the loop on what's going on with Scientology on a weekly basis in terms of the news about it. But uh, that's my uh, plan. So uh, I am really, really excited about all of this. And as you've seen in my podcast recently as well, speaking of cults podcast and even the Friday shows, we've been really going way beyond Scientology-related stuff. Now, not last night. I want to tell everybody uh, I really liked last night's show on ideal orgs and Scientology expansion and sort of talking historically and sort of from a mile-high you know, view of Scientology, we really went uh, into some stuff last night to, that I think kind of showed why it is that the Church of Scientology is really on its way out and there isn't anything that's going to turn that ship around or, or right that boat or, or correct that course. It's the Titanic. It's sinking. It's on its way down. And uh, we're just kind of all sitting here watching it happen. And that's really good news. All right. So uh, that all being said, let's... <laughs> yes, young Matador, you are allowed alcohol watching this. All right, so let's go ahead and start uh, taking up some of your questions here. And the first one is an interesting one. Uh, this is a really convoluted subject in Scientology, the genetic entity. Um, oh, boy, people in Scientology are so confused by this concept and what it is. And I'm going to give you my best interpretation of my understanding of it. And I will let you know that I spent hours and hours. I remember very clearly my time in Scientology. And even when I remember this most specifically when I was on the RPF, I spent a whole morning, I spent days actually, um, going through the L. Ron Hubbard lectures from the 1951-52 time period. There's... That time period has some of the wildest, most insanely imaginative stuff that Hubbard ever came up with for Scientology was that time period. That's when he really started exploring or talking about the Phaeton and what is it, how does it relate to bodies, how does it run a body, what, how does it actually do it? Uh, and, and Hubbard talked about energy flows and tractor beams and presser beams and how the Phaeton would use these energy beams to control the body. But one of the other concepts that comes out of that time period and was, and was a rather convoluted concept that people had a really hard time getting their wits around for years was the genetic entity. And the way Hubbard describes it is he says that you are a composite being. You, you right now are not just a Thetan. You are a Thetan with a mind inhabiting a body. And inside that body are these entities. And this was now back in 51, 52 time period with History of Man and these kind of books. 
Hubbard wasn't yet talking about body thetans. That comes much later with the whole Xenu story. But a very similar concept of, of living entity or, you know, beings, not necessarily organisms, not, not, we're not talking about like your, like your microbiome or something. We're not talking about like bacteria or viruses or things that, that legit live in your body. We're talking here about spiritual components or, you know, sort of non-physical entities. And uh, Hubbard made various references to this, most especially in History of Man and some of the lectures from that time. And he talked about how there are these parallel lines of, of development where the Thetan, you, me, as a spiritual entity, are going from body line to body line, right? But there are there are body lines. There's, there's the development of a body, a familial line, right? You and somebody else get together and you have a baby and that baby goes and gets together, you know, grows up and gets together with somebody and they have a baby and on and on it goes. That reproductive line is what's called a genetic line in Scientology. Hubbard talks about this as a genetic line. You know, the protoplasm, the DNA, everything kind of moving through time life after life after life, there's this continuing stream of life. And that is controlled by or is managed and operated by this other semi-spiritual sort of living entity called the genetic entity or the GE. And and it's a strange kind of concept. It's the idea basically is that this is sort of the aspect or part of life. This genetic entity is this is sort of the will or the intent or the or the um, causative element or agent, the living element of evolution, of an evolutionary development of of of, of bodies moving along, evolving over time, this kind of thing. The genetic entity is sort of this thing that oversees this and manages the process at a biological, physical level. And I know this is very bizarre sounding and that it's not necessarily easy to understand or gets your wits around for a lot of people. And so I'm doing my, my level best here to explain this simply, but that's basically the concept of the GE. It is not something that is the same thing as a Thetan. You could consider it a sort of more primitive, lower kind of life or manifestation of Theta, if you will. Um, it's not a full-blown, self-aware, spiritual entity like a Thetan is. It's kind of a lesser version of a Thetan in, in, in a way. But it's not, it's not like it's a devolved Thetan or an unconscious Thetan or a, a Thetan that's been demoted. That's not what a GE is. A GE has always been a GE, and it depends for its existence on the fact that bodies exist. And it only exists to cater to that genetic line of bodies. And the Thetan can confuse the genetic entity and its impulses and drives and desires for the Thetan's own impulses, drives, and desires. And this can become confusing for the Thetan because it starts thinking the body is it, it, the Thetan, right? They, they, the, the, the Thetan can get confused by this. 
And, uh, and that's where there's a similarity between what the GE is and what it's doing and body thetans and what they're doing. Because the, the thetan running the body, this composite being of thetan, body, GE, BTs, mind, all this stuff glommed together is your normal, regular human being, according to L. Ron Hubbard. <sighs> okay. I hope all of that makes sense. Um, because that's the best answer I've got <laughs> for that. So feel free to ask me anything more about that, but that's what I can uh, tell you about that one. Um, okay, let us move on here. And we have... Okay, Xion also asks, what kinds of abilities did we have, according to L. Ron Hubbard, as Thetans in the past? Great question. Basically, Thetans in Scientology, um, and I don't know that it's entirely coincidental, by the way, that it rhymes so closely with Satan. <laughs> uh, but Thetans are the core aspect of life, the, 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 the thing that makes life life, is Theta, this, this life energy. And thetans uh, are individual aspects or manifestations of theta as self-aware living entities or units, right? That's a thetan. Uh, you're a thetan. I'm a thetan. We just have bodies. We control and run bodies. But this body that you're carrying around with you right now is not who you really are, according to Hubbard. All right. So what can Thetans do? Well, it just so happens that, again, 1951, 52, 53 time period, Hubbard was all about let's categorize and figure out and quantify and measure and do whatever else we can do to talk about Thetans and what they're all about. And Thetans have a limitless, endless potential for creation and destruction of matter, energy, space, and time in any form, any way, any place anywhere, right? Anything a Thetan wants to create or do, basically it can. At least at some point in the past, it was able to. This is what we call uh, native state uh, for a Thetan, is, the, is back when they were just little, little living beings who hadn't yet been corrupted by, you know, this vast physical universe of matter, energy, space, and time. Um, and I continually am harping, I'm, I'm, I'm using all the Scientology terminology here and answering this, of course, right? In modern scientific terminology, we would actually be discussing these things in very different terms. Because like space-time, for example, is kind of figured out as the same thing now. It's a very different concept than when Hubbard was around where space was space and time was time. And they really didn't have much to do with each other. Uh, or they weren't as, as connected as we now understand them to be. So, um, so it's kind of interesting, you know, that I, I have to keep going back to the Scientology archaic concepts of this stuff. This is not how modern science thinks about this. But um, as far as, um, yeah, as far as abilities go, Thetans can create anything. You want to make up a planet and play marbles with it? Right? You want to throw Jupiter around out of orbit and, and crash it into Mars or something? Go right ahead. Thetans can do that. Right? It's nothing. It's nothing for a Thetan to do that. The entire infinite, vast, you know, complex of, of stars and black holes and, and planets and galaxies and universes that is the physical universe 
is just a playground for a Thetan. And so, um, so you know, ripping the air cover off a planet, no big deal. Right? Boom, it's done. Uh, ignite the air cover of a planet to commit genocide, right? Boom, no problem, easy. Play around in the sun. Go hang around in the core of the sun for a day or two. Yeah, easy. No big deal, right? Because a thetan is not a physical thing. It is. Uh, it is. It exists inside the physical universe wherever it considers itself to be. It doesn't really have a location. It just flits about to wherever it wants to be aware of being. So, yeah, it's a very magical being. The thetan is. It's the ultimate unicorn. Um, you can do anything with it. So that's, uh, that's kind of the answer on that one is really the answer is anything and, uh, any, everything and anything you can, you can imagine, including creating matter, energy, space, and time out of whole cloth, out of nothing. Now there's an interesting thing just to comment on this real fast. One thing Hubbard never touched was time travel really never got into it. I don't recall. Maybe maybe there's lectures where he, where he dropped some comments about it that I didn't hear. But, but time travel is not a thing in Scientology. And I find that fascinating given the fact that an OT, an operating Thetan, is defined in Scientology as a being who is that knowing and willing cause over matter, energy, space, time, life, and form. Time is part of that equation of what a Thetan is supposed to be cause over. So theoretically speaking, a Thetan should be able to move up and down the time track in the universe here, in, you know, move up and down other people's time track as well, because time's just a consideration, right, according to Hubbard. So moving in time shouldn't really be any more of a challenge to a Thetan than moving through space or matter, or energy. But Hubbard never really got into that. And I just find, I just thought I'd comment on that. Because of all the abilities a Thetan should have, I think those should be one of them, but Hubbard didn't talk about that. And I don't know why, except of course for the fact that it gets, you start talking about time travel and most people's, you know, heads turn into pretzels really fast because it's really complicated stuff. Uh, and I don't know that Hubbard ever really wanted to tackle that uh, as such or, or all of the complications and, um, you know, consequences of doing that. You start telling people they can time travel, you know, and altering the past or altering the future before it's even happened. I mean, what? <laughs> you know? uh, but theoretically, again, according to the words Hubbard said, should be possible, shouldn't it? I mean, I don't think I'm out to lunch on that. Anyway, so there's, uh, there's the answer to that question for you, Xion. Great question. Um, okay, let's see what else we've got here. Let me, I can pull that down. Okay. Uh, young Matador. Hey, Chris, with your experience, can you describe the flap that will occur when the Austin Ideal Org is being designed for an opening weekend? Thanks. Um, I'm not totally sure I understand your question, Matador, but let me give it a shot. Let me give it my best shot here at understanding what I think you're saying. Um, yeah, I mean, I think what you're asking me about is basically like how crazy is it going to be on the ground in Austin because of this opening today? I think the opening is today, right, for the ideal organ Austin. And um, 
It's going to be it's going to be confusion central down there. I mean, they're going to have uh, if especially if Miscavige is is present to do the opening. Uh, you're going to have security. You're going to have you know however many number of staff they have, which is not a full complement as I understand it. Um, you're going to have you know whatever problems with uh, process servers having to be kept away or security having to do their whole drill to keep Miscavige safe and keep all the looky-loos away. It's a very weird thing Scientology does with their grand openings of their orgs because they want to make it look like the entire community is coming out to celebrate the, you know, with bated breath, they've all been waiting for this org to open so that their community can be you know, educated and informed and take part in these wonderful services that Scientology has, has got ready for them. Uh, but that's not really the case. The, the Scientology org neighbors don't give a shit about Scientology and don't really want them around. And, you know, most people understand Scientology is pretty toxic stuff. So they have to create this image of all these people showing up and celebrating this opening while at the same time hiding the fact that they're actually gating off and walling off this whole event and don't want anybody anywhere near it who they are not in control of. So the entire opening day drill, you could say, or you know, the purpose of the, the main thing they're working on in, in the activity is controlling everything that's going on <laughs> which is really hard to do when you got you know a few hundreds of people on the street there and it's a public avenue and venue and all of that so there's going to be all kinds of tense teeth gnashing and a lot of uh, having to do with all of that as well as wrangling the city officials or whoever whatever government opinion leaders they got to you know convince to come talk to keep everybody in line to go into the building and control the flow of traffic through the building. This is your opening day, you know, activity. And Miscavige's schedule when he's on site there for this stuff is is pretty tailored down to the minute. They have photos ops with all of the local whales and with the dignitaries and government officials. Miscavige gets to do FaceTime with all of them and and uh, and glad handing and, and get lots of photo photographs. And then they, um, you know, want to validate all the local people who, you know, pushed all the money into the thing to make it happen. So Miscavige does some, you know, meet and greets with those guys. And, um, and it's that kind of thing, right? It's sort of how it goes. And of course, yes, as Mrs. J says here, right? Of course, they will be bringing in lots of people from out of town to make it look like there are many, many more Scientologists in that area in Austin who are, you know, so happy that the church is opening. Probably somewhere on the order of 50 to 70% of the people you're going to see in those photographs aren't from Austin. That's a guess off the top of my head, but based on my experience in Twin Cities and Vegas and Portland and all the other openings I've been to, kind of works out that way. Right. There are Scientologists. There are some really dedicated Scientologists all over the United States who have made it their mission to fly and be part of every ideal org opening. They've been at every one of them. <laughs> and um, and so they all show up and then they bring in their, you know, the OT committee people and all the other folks they can wrangle up in there. So as much as possible, they want to make it a big grand opening and, and lively affair, but they want to control it within an inch of its life as well. And that's, 
you know, that's kind of what I can say about that. But again, if I missed anything or there's more that you're wondering about on that, go ahead and, and ask me. Um, okay, um, Jehovah's Witness. And make sure, guys, that you're getting your questions in the question box under my, under my comment there because this is the last one I've got in the queue right now. Jehovah's Witness Apostate. I love the way you change your name around every year. This is great. When Scientology loses its tax exemption, do you think that Bridge Publications will have to cut back its book production? Huh. That's an interesting question. Let me think about that one. Um, I mean, yeah, but hmm. See, the thing about Bridge Publications, I guess the reason I kind of go, huh, because I worked at Bridge for about nine months making books, saw the whole operation from the inside, and it's really quite something. There's a, they have a building in, um, where is it, uh, Compton or somewhere around there in California? They have this facility that is like three football fields in size. I mean, the thing is huge. It's this gigantic building. And it's divided into three parts. And uh, book storage is the, is the third inventory, you know, management that sh racks and racks and racks of of boxes of books and e-meters and CDs and stuff like that. Then there's the production area, which is the middle division of this great big building. And that is printing presses and color presses and cover presses and bindings and all the stuff you need to create books. And then the front section is the, uh, the bulk of the bridge staff, of the sales force and the executives and the, you know, all the staff and everybody. And they work kind of up in the front. So, so out of this facility come hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of Scientology publications on a regular basis. But... Who's consuming them? Nobody. I mean, really. Legit. I mean it. Nobody. All the books that they've published since the release of the basics and the course packs and the, the volumes and the pamphlets and the materials, they're all just sitting on shelves. Or they get shipped off to libraries and libraries throw them away. Or they get shipped off to Scientologists who put them in their garages. We know of Scientologists who have nine or ten full sets of the basic books and lectures. And the ACCs and the Congresses, just boxes. Their garages are full of this stuff. They can't give them away fast enough. This has been the case for well over a decade now. So I don't know. I mean, obviously, I'm not privy to the daily, you know, production schedule of Bridge at this point. But I don't even know why they're printing anything these days other than maybe brand new versions of the materials where they revise them and got to come up with new stuff. And with the various releases, as we talked about last night, that Scientology is always engaged in this constant, you know, flow of new product that actually isn't new at all. It's just the same regurgitated stuff with a few commas changed or words moved around or something, right? Um, that process, that ongoing thing is an internally created and demanded production just to keep the Sea Org busy. It's really not there's no demand for it, I guess, is what I'm saying. So when I, when I look at your question, I think to myself, 
Um, well, they don't have to lose tax exemption in order for the demand to go down. There already is no demand. They, they're, they, you know, they're just producing to produce just for the sake of it, really. You know, as, I hope that makes sense. Um, it's an, I, I don't know. It's, a, it's an odd idea, I guess. But um, it's just Scientology is just not it's not in demand you know i guess that's kind of my point right and so um so yeah if they lose their tax exemption then uh maybe they will stop you know wasting so many resources as you mentioned yeah fewer trees right um yeah just all the the the, the waste that that place has engaged in scientology is a real paper mill by the way i mean they <laughs> we went through so much paper uh, you, uh, for no good reason at all. I don't mean like the worksheets and the, the documentation. I mean just wasting uh, because, you know, arbitrary demands that we do so. It was pretty crazy. Anyway, get some more questions in the queue, folks, because I have run out of them. And uh, and if that's all we're going to do today, then that's, you know, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. So many of the Scientology lectures are out there. So it's all rather silly. Um, that it is that way, you know? It really is. All right. Now, I'm going to check something real fast just to see if it's there. I don't think it is. Oh, it is. Okay, good. Oh, no, I'm not tackling that one. <laughs> oh, yes. But there was this. Okay, let me see if I can... Um, Throw this up here. Where's... Oh, OBG Foster, I do not see your question in the queue here. Um, in the comment box. Make sure you put your questions under the comment. Ask me anything below this comment here. That's where uh, they go for me to be able to see them. Um, Skip that ad. By the way, I've got all my live streams now set on to... Um, oh, did that come back up? My bad. I did not mean to hit that again. Sorry about that. Um, I've got all my live streams set to conservative. YouTube has three settings for how many... For, for the volume of ads that are going to go up during a live stream. They have conservative, balanced, and I think... Uh, heavy or something or whatever the, the the big one is and i've set it all to conservative so i really hope you guys aren't getting hit too much with um with the um with ads while we're going along here just uh just throwing that out there all right well cool so i had let me see if i can uh do this. Oh, asked it again. Okay, uh, for some reason it's not coming up in my question box. That is odd, isn't it? Oh, there they go. Oh my God, suddenly it just did this update and they all dumped in. I, I do not know why there is a lag on that, but thank you very much for your patience, guys. Uh, suddenly like 20 of them showed up. <laughs> um, okay, great. Let's just carry on down the line. Exion, what would have your, what would your life have been or be like without LRH or Scientology. I don't know. I, I just don't know because it was such a part of my life for so long. My parents would have been divorced. 
uh, they would have stayed divorced. And so I would have been, um, you know, uh, I don't know how long it would have been for them to have gotten reconnected or remarried to other people, right? Or what would have happened through me with me growing up in the 70s as a, as a um, you know, a child of divorce, uh, you know, as, as well as latchkey kid, of course, in the 70s. So probably, though, I'd probably still be the same basic person inquiring, reading, constantly having my nose in a book, you know, as a growing up as a kid. And that would have informed an awful lot of my, you know, continuing life where I probably would have had the same kind of impulses and desires to engage in movie making and creative arts and writing eventually, which is what I kind of went down the the, the trail of where I was going with my life is I was going to be a writer. I wanted to write fiction books. And I sort of tailored my thoughts of my existence around following in the footsteps of like a Stephen King or a Dean Koontz or, you know, a popular uh, good author who could tell, you know, stories. That was kind of my ambition. And I had ideas and I had some story stuff and I thought this was going to be kind of cool. And then, you know, and then Scientology got hold of me and recruited me as a teenager and that that dream died as I pursued Scientology and decided to save the world instead. <laughs> so I think it would have pursued, I think I probably still would have ended up on a path very similar or like that instead. And uh, that's about as much as I can think about where I would have gone or what I would have been doing. Otherwise, it's just, you know, just me who, you know, this guy, right? Um, yeah, I think that's probably the path I would have followed anyway, basically, unless something had acted uh, to, you know, kind of billiard ball me, you know, in some other direction entirely. Maybe I would have met somebody different growing up or I would have been inspired by some mentor figure in a very different direction. But I don't know that it would have been so different that it wouldn't have had to do with the creative arts and with writing and with my you know, kind of the skills that I just sort of have. And, you know, also, of course, the gift of gab, right? I talk, 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 talk. I talk a lot. And I've always been that way. Um, so maybe I would have gone in that direction. I mean, I could have been a DJ or something, you know, something like that. I mean, who knows, right? I could have gone in all kinds of different directions. But I think it would have been something along those lines. Okay, let's, uh, let's carry on here. Oh, I don't know. This is an interesting question. Jehovah's Witness Apostate asked, did John Atak have a freeloader bill after he left Scientology? No, I, no, no. I don't think he did because he was never a staff member uh, or a Sea Org member. He was only a Scientology public. So, no, he would not have had any freeloader's bill um, because he didn't have anything to – he wasn't a freeloader. He wasn't – that's for a staff. If you're, if you are a staff member or a Sea Org member of Scientology, and you leave, you stop, you quit before your legal contract is done as a volunteer, then you are charged for the services that Scientology delivered to you for free as a staff member, right? Because you get free stuff, <laughs> supposedly, kind of. Uh, so that's. You know, so John was never part of any of that, so he would not have had a free order bill. All right, X Cyan, can you explain what Scientology's meaning of Q and A and what's an anti Q and A drill? Oh, sure, absolutely. So Q and A, question and answer in Scientology has this very specific definition. 
In fact, I wonder that I couldn't find it real fast for you uh, in the scriptures. So let me see. I've got the dictionaries and everything right here. So let's pull up the... Um, let's try pulling up the pilot dictionary. I wonder if it's in here. There's a, um, you know, there's the Scientology Technical Dictionary and there's the Scientology Administrative Dictionary, these two big dictionaries. But then there's also this thing called the Pilot Dictionary, which is a compilation of stuff that is not, strictly speaking, just L. Ron Hubbard's writings where they put together a bunch of definitions of Scientology terms. And... Uh, Q&A, here we go. Q&A, Q&A, Q... Oh my God, there's so many definitions in here for Q&A. Holy cow, there's a lot. There's, there's like a full page here on this. Um, Q&A. All right, here we go. From question and answer, in Scientology, a coined expression, which means... Uh, that you did not get an answer to your question, failed to complete something, or deviated from an intended course of action. An auditor who starts a process, just gets it going, gets a new idea because of something the PC says, takes up what the PC says, and abandons the process, is q and a Okay? So it's, a, it's, it's basically not finishing what you started. It's, going, it's getting distracted. It's bouncing. It's going off in some other direction for any reason whatsoever. Even if, it's, even if it seems like a really good idea and something you really should be doing, you don't do it because it's a Q&A. And this is man's deadliest disease, according to L. Ron Hubbard. Uh, he really had a lot to say about Q&A. Um, Oh, yeah, for some reason they just repeated the same definition like five or six times in this pilot dictionary. That's really weird. Um, yeah, you didn't get an answer to your question. You failed to complete something or you just went off of some course of action you were on, right? And, uh, and it's a really bad thing. So the anti-Q&A drill is a drill you do in order to... Um, cure yourself of this thing that you're doing, right? And let me see if that's in here too, because I don't think I have that. Um, I don't think I have that issue, the Q&A thing available to me here. So I don't remember exactly what the drill, the anti-Q&A drill consisted of. So let me see if it's in this dictionary here. I'm rapidly paging down through the definitions to see if they have an anti-Q&A definition in here. Jesus, this pilot dictionary is 2,400 pages. That's what, I'm, that's what I'm flipping through right now, looking for this stuff. 2,400 pages of definitions out of Scientology stuff. Jesus Christ. Um, anti-pathetic. Yeah, anti-pathetic indeed. No. Okay, so that's not there. So let's close that and let's see if there is something in the actual technical dictionary, which I've now got open here, and see if we have anything in here under anti-Q&A. Anti-Q&A TR. Here it is. Perfect. I thought it was in here. Okay, here's the commands. Here's how you do. Here's how you resolve somebody who does this 
bouncy bounce thing all the time, right? Who's constantly deviating from the process commands or the procedure they're supposed to be following. Um, basically, the command is put that object on my knee, whatever the object is, and you're usually using a book. Student is to get the coach to place the object that he has in his hand on the knee of the student. So you have you sit across from each other, just like when you do the TRs, you're three feet across from each other, kind of knees touching sort of thing. And the purpose of the drill is to train the student in getting a PC to carry out a command using formal communication, but not tone 40. You don't do that whole you know, intention thing, right? You're just using regular conversational voice for this. Um, and you're trying to enable the student to maintain his TRs while giving commands and to train the student to not get upset with the PC under formal auditing uh, and to get this disease out of an HTC, you got to get auditors to do this anti-Q&A drilling. I am like steeping this answer in Scientology lore or, or terminology right now. But basically, the anti-Q&A drill in its simplicity is sit across from somebody, they got a book in their hand, and you keep telling them, put that book on my knee. And they will do anything but putting that book on your knee. They'll do, they'll, they will... They will play with the book. They'll read the book. They'll ignore the book. They will cajole you, bull bait you, taunt you, tease you, do anything to you, ignore you. And your job is to just keep giving the command. Put that book on my knee. Put that book on my knee. Put that book on my knee. <laughs> you don't even acknowledge what they say. You just... Put that book on my knee, right? Put that book on me. I guess if, I think if I remember right, if they say something that is personal to them as an origination, like, oh, my, my head hurts, or I don't think I want to do that because I, I'm not feeling very well right now, then you're supposed to acknowledge that communication. You go, oh, okay, I'm sorry, I understand. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. Why don't you put that book on my knee? <laughs> and you go right back to it, right? So you're not, so you're supposed to be training the person in not Q&A, right? Not diverting off or, or doing something else. That's the anti-Q&A drill. All right, there you go. So uh, let's go back here. Okay. Oh, here's a great question from Xion. Did you watch any of the series Babylon 5? And what did you think of it? <laughs> okay. Thanks for asking me this. Uh, yes, I did watch Babylon 5. I watched the first three seasons of it before I kind of got sick of it. Um, it was uh, a little too corny for me. The dialogue was a little bit too on the nose. I didn't like Sheridan as a character. I found him annoying and uh, sort of luxury and sort of, uh, you know, a little holier than thou in some ways and, and, just, and just kind of irritating in others and i and i know i'm gonna rub people the wrong way saying all this stuff okay i know there are people who love this show and i don't care at all it's fine with me you love the show it's no it's, it's no big deal to me i don't hate the show and i don't want the show destroyed i'm just saying i couldn't yeah i couldn't really keep going with it i was told it had this amazing payoff after like season four or five or something and i i tried but it just really wasn't doing it for me. So, um, so that was, yeah, that was Babylon 5. I did find certain aspects of the writing interesting, and it was true that it was a deeper series than it first appears to be. There is more going on under the surface with the show than, than it appears. But the production values were so bad. 
I mean, it was distractingly bad. Like it was, you know, it was a uh, it was a, a show that was produced in the 1990s, but it basically looked and felt an awful lot like the Star Trek from the 60s uh, in terms of its production design and values and stuff like that. Right. Um, the set design, I mean, the costuming, the, the spaceships, all that stuff, you know, eh, it was all right. A lot of computer generated stuff. So, um, so I don't know. That was my my take on it. You know, I don't mean to be, you know, uh, anyway, I just, it wasn't for me. Let's put it that way. Okay. If you could make one, oh, wow, I've got a lot of questions from Xion today. If you could make one rule that everyone had to follow, what rule would you make? Damn, one rule. One rule to rule them all. What shall it be? That's a really tough question. Because um, I can't assume that the rule will always be followed, right? So... I could put a rule there that everybody's supposed to follow, but are they going to, right? I mean, you know, you could put things forward like be kind or, you know, uh, when in doubt, you know, find out, <laughs> you know, don't assume, uh, you know, or, you know, what happens when you assume, right? Um, you know, these are great guiding rules, little principles to, to, to live by, but, um, but people know them, but they don't follow them. Um, I suppose if I... If there was a rule that I could enforce that everyone had to follow, like had to follow, I suppose it would be that before you engage in any sort of decision making or, or, or communication or something in anybody's direction of a decision, you know, sort of nature, that you have got to stop and consider the unintended as well as the intended consequences of your actions. <laughs> Because I think that that's the number one thing that we all fail at so hard. God damn, have I um, so many times. And I, and I don't think I'm projecting onto everybody else my own personal failings. I think this is a personal failing we all have as human beings, is that we just don't stop and consider the consequences of our actions or our statements or our thoughts or whatever. And it takes us you know, hours, days, weeks sometimes for it all to sink in. And wouldn't it be nice if there was some way that you could just kind of tune yourself or train yourself into thinking about that stuff so it doesn't take weeks or months for it to all sink in, that you could kind of see where things were going to go because you thought about it first or you kind of gave it some consideration or you even talked about it with other people first before you went doing something, you know, uh, kind of silly and, and off the rails um, that we all do right there's no preventing conflict and there's no preventing fumble and stumble and problems and mistakes you, you you can't you know that's what life is but i think if we could give just a little bit more consideration to you know what we're doing that might be a rule i could put in place um that might not itself have horrible unintended consequences but you know who knows right all right um Okay, here's an interesting, what's this question here? Um, on OT8, it's revealed that you weren't anything that you learned in the previous levels of Scientology, that you will finally discover who you are on OT9. 
So is it that all what you learned is BS? Um, well, see, the, the things you learn in Scientology are not BS to an OT8. The reactive mind, Phaetons, bodies, BTs, the experience of having lived in the past up to now and that that, you know, affected you. All of that's still true. As I understand it, when you get to OT8, you, there's some kind of flipping the script on you in terms of your memories of your past events. And somehow maybe a lot of that didn't necessarily happen to you because you were confusing it for what happened to the body thetans that were glommed onto you. Their memories were confused with your memories and it all got jumbled into this big mess. And then also, referencing what we talked about earlier today, there's also the genetic entities memories. You know, the whole, oh yeah, you know, I should have said this earlier on that whole GE thing. The clam and the, you know, that whole thing about being on the beach and being a clam or being a spore or being, you know, an amoeba, like all that memory that Hubbard talks about from History of Man, those are the genetic entities' memories. Those aren't your memories as a Thetan, right? That's the GE. And you're confusing those incidents and those memories with your own. You as a Thetan weren't on the beach crawling under the sand. That was the GE pushing evolution forward. So those memories are confused for your own. And I believe if I, now this is how I've understood it, and I could be wrong, and I'm willing to be wrong about this, but as I've understood it, when you get to OTA, you kind of have to do this big separation of all of those memories from your memories and your experiences and memories were not really all of that. And it can become this big jumbled mess. And now that you have gotten rid of all of that, I think the positive spin on OT8 is supposed to be, now that you've gotten rid of all that junk and all those false memories and all that confusion, here you are, just little tiny, boink, little happy Phaetons. And now you're going to go on to OT9 and start rehabilitating who you really are and what you're really about as a simple spiritual entity with nothing else glommed onto you. That's how I've understood it to be. And if it's different than that, go ahead and clarify that for me. But that's how I've always understood OT8. And, um, and it is confusing and it can, you know, throw people around. I... I'm, you know, I'm somebody who steeped themselves in a lot of Scientology tech and lore and trying to figure it out for years and years and years. Not all Scientologists do that. And there are Scientologists who get all the way up to OT8 who don't know, you know, e even a small percentage of all the stuff I know or other trained Scientologists knew uh, about Scientology. And so they get very confused and it gets very, you know, weird for them at that level and... You know, and they have bad reactions and all that. And I'm not saying that it was and that that it was only their misunderstandings or ignorance that caused OT8 to be a bad experience for them. It's bad no matter what. I'm just trying to differentiate, I guess, knowing about Scientology versus not, and how that can be confusing. I hope that makes sense. It's I, I'm 
Yeah, I'm going to shut up before I get make this even more confusing. Um, okay. Uh, okay, Jehovah's Witness Apostate, when will you start your month-long break from social media? I already did. Uh, this week I did. I haven't been on social media for days. Um, no Facebook, Instagram, Discord, Twitter, um, it, Reddit, nothing. Not going on any places and commenting or doing anything on anything. Um, I, you know, detox time. Time to just get away from all that. And in my personal life as well, right? It's like... I've already declared, you know, like uh, some time ago, I've declared my channel like a drama-free zone, right? I'm not, I'm not here to talk about other ex-members of Scientology or other groups. I'm here to talk about how to help people and how to, how to try to do something about this stuff and how to move on from it, not, you know, sink ourselves into the drama of it all. And that's kind of, and then I sort of extended that into my personal life as well this week with you know this social media detox right is just like get away from it entirely i don't need to be part of any of that i I, it's just upsetting and very 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 distracting to me and um and so rather than continue to put myself into the as tony says right rather than continuing to put my head into the buzzsaw right maybe i could just walk out of the tool shed entirely and go you know and, and go focus on the stuff i really want to be focusing on and I hope you will see that reflected in uh, this channel. Okay. Um, oh, see what this is here. Anthony Spurgeon. Hey, Anthony. Um, are you aware of Bob Proctor? He recently died and was a big proponent of the law of attraction. Do you think that stupid idea is the key idea behind destructive cults? You... You can will changes in life. Okay. Great question, Anthony. I am not familiar with uh, Bob Proctor as such, at least not off the top of my head. Maybe I've heard of him before. But the, the secret or the, the law of attraction, let's take a look at this real fast because it is not the only thing that is going on in cults, but it is um, pretty prevalent out there, okay? Um, this is very, uh, you know, the law of attraction is very attractive to people. It really is. Uh, there's a lot on this thing. I mean, there's even a whole Wikipedia article, which of course I'm going to go to, um, is the new thought spiritual belief that positive or negative thoughts bring positive or negative experiences into a person's life. The belief is based on the idea that people and their thoughts are made from pure energy quote-unquote, and that like energy can attract like energy, thereby allowing people to improve their health, wealth, or personal relationships. There is no empirical scientific evidence supporting the law of attraction, and it is widely considered to be pseudoscience or religion couched in scientific language. Uh, this belief has alternative names that have varied in popularity over time, including manifestation, and lucky girl syndrome. <laughs> okay. So that's what we're talking about when we, when we refer to um, um, law of attraction. Okay. And um, it's magical. It's a kind of magic thinking, right? It's a kind of like, well, if I think the right thoughts, 
good things will happen to me. Or if I'm thinking all this negativity, bad things. I'm going to pull in, right? This is Scientology expression. In the Scientology world, it's pulling in with energy flows. Remember earlier I mentioned thetans and energy flows. This is how Hubbard says thetans manifest things is using energy. And so he fit his whole thing with the law of attraction. There's other things going on there too, but law of attraction is pretty core to this. Um, it extends out to many, many other cults and spiritual belief systems and ideas. Um, it's a very broadly accepted, broadly believed concept, although there's lots and lots of terminology and lots and lots of groups for it. They don't all call it law of attraction. I never, ever once heard that as an expression in Scientology. They had other words for it. Um, but it's a, it's a wonderful mechanism, you could say. It's a wonderful tool of control to dominate people's minds using law of attraction if you are so, you know, bent to do that. Um, because it's a perfect blame the victim mentality to crush your members with. You know, if they're not manifesting money or energy or time or whatever it is they're supposed to be manifesting for themselves or the leader or the cult group itself, it's their failing. Well, you're just not thinking the right thoughts. It opens the door immediately to any degree of thought policing that you want to engage in. And you can run people into the ground with this, right? You're not meditating right, or you're not meditating enough. You're not auditing right. You're not thetaning right. You're not whatever it is you're supposed to be doing if it's not manifesting in pulling in, you know, the lottery for you or the new job or the relationship or whatever it is that's supposed to be manifesting for you, well, you're just not thinking the right thoughts, are you? Right? And it's all about introverting your attention and directing your, your criticism toward yourself and never toward anything that's going on around you. And this is uh, sort of the ultimate in introversion and, um, and sort of self-trauma, really, you know, self-inflicted trauma. So, um, so it's really, it's not a, it's, it's not a, it, it can go to very dark places very quickly if you really buy into this too hard. Um, there is nothing wrong. I always try to say this in pair with this law of attraction thing when it comes up. I always want to tell people there is absolutely nothing wrong with thinking positive thoughts or walking around with a positive attitude. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a good thing to do. Mentally, it's good for your mental health that you have a positive outlook on your life and that you want good things or you're optimistic about things. That's a, that's a good place to be. Law of attraction is, is, is very different from that. It's, a, it's an extreme belief that demands your you know, intent and, and dedication and devotion and this kind of thing. Just having a positive attitude isn't something you really should be having to struggle with all the time, right? But by having a positive or a more positive attitude or maybe emphasizing positivity over negativity in your life, you give yourself more positive neurochemicals, right? Neurotransmitters and, and chemicals in your brain kind of flow a little differently and it more readily engages your frontal lobes and keeps your brain operating at a more rational, non-amygdala-driven level, you could say. And that's, a, that's probably the easiest way to put it, right? Is it, is it, it's good for your brain uh, and it's good for your attitude 
if you can do that. But that's a that's a way different thing. That's a that's a much lighter grade thing than you know diving into law of attraction. So anyway, hope I hope I made that clear. Um, real quick here, yes, OBG Foster. If body thetans are also the are also thetans, can they flit about from person to person through space and time? Yes, they are capable of doing that once they wake up and realize that they're stuck to a body and they need to go off and do their own thing. That's the whole rehabilitation process that you engage in on the OT levels is you are waking up and rehabilitating these body thetans so that they can indeed flit off and, and go do their own thing. Uh, that's what that's all about. Um, Okay, young matador. Uh, Tony mentioned on his blog an insider's estimate of ideal orgs. I remember that costing around twenty-five million to build and refurbish. How much of this money would come from the Church of Scientology itself, and how much from local whales? Almost all of it comes from local donations from the parishioners. Hardly any of it comes from Church of Scientology International or from reserves, unless it's a flap and a problem, and they need to open this org. Like Harlem was paid for that way, I think. Um, uh, the other Inglewood um, was open this way. Um, I think um, Kaohsiung, the uh, that whole facility in um, in Taiwan was opened up uh, that way. They, the church itself paid for it. But most of these 64 ideal orgs that have been opened now, or 65 if we're counting Austin, uh, were paid for by local Scientologists ponying up. They had to pay for the building purchase, and then they had to pay for the building renovation. And it's, un it's, it's believed, and we've talked about this in the years ago, that Scientology actually engages in price gouging and gets money, it actually makes money off of the parishioners when they, do, when they pay for the e-meters and the books and the furniture and all the things that the church produces for the facility, those are almost all that stuff is produced in-house by the church, even the furniture uh, to a great degree. And uh, all of that is paid for uh, by the parishioners buying that stuff from the church. Right, those meters don't come free. You got to pay uh, bridge or gold for them, that kind of thing. So, um, so uh, as I understand it, I believe the church is actually making money, not paying money out in most of those ideal org situations. Um, okay, moving on here. Jeremy Dixon, how many books in HCLBs did LRH write? How many? Um, Lectures did he give? I know that it's all crap, but is it really, is it all really necessary for Scientology or did LRH go a bit overboard? <laughs> yeah, he might have gone a little overboard. Um, okay, we've got something on the order of 24 to 30 books, basic books of Scientology and Dianetics. We have 5,000 plus recorded lectures, if I remember right. Um, when you look at the entire stream of lectures from 1950 all the way through to the 80s, and this is public and private lectures, briefings, you know, that kind of thing, not just um, Hubbard standing in the dais talking. There were lots and lots of lectures where he was sitting across from somebody talking to one person, right? Um, so you have, you have a few of those. Um, but I think it's something like 5,000 of them and uh, just thousands and thousands of pages of bulletins in Scientology, those red volumes. I mean, there's, there's just tons of them. 
Um, so yeah, so a lot, a lot of stuff. And yeah, did Hubbard go overboard? Yeah, thank. <laughs> yeah, maybe he did. Oh my God, we're already we're already over an hour into this. I promised uh, Mel that we would only go an hour. So let me take a quick look. I'm sorry, guys. I'm not going to be able to get to all your questions here today. Um, so let me take a quick look here and see if there's anything else that I want to make sure that I get answered today that might be cool for you guys. Um, these are some great questions. I want you guys to come back with these. These are some really good ones. Um, uh, let's see. Okay. Here's a great question, Bo. Uh, do you not see the value or worth of the current protests bringing a ton more wog eyes on the cult of Scientology? Not to mention the worth of second gen seeking trauma healing from childhood abuses. Um, sure. Yeah, knock yourselves out. But don't think you're making a big difference in the world of Scientology or that you're somehow striking some big blow to Scientology. Um, because that's not what's happening, right? But yeah, sure, it's bringing some, some public exposure. I have yet to see any major media or news articles about this other than the Rolling Stone article. Um, so I don't really know what sort of exposure, uh, if you're talking about TikTok exposure and stuff, uh, okay. Uh, cool. That's better than nothing. I will absolutely say that. I don't have a problem with that, right? I'm not, I'm not saying don't do it. What I'm saying is be effective at it. Don't be an asshole about it. And rocking around on the street yelling obscenities at Sea Org members is just not, it's not okay. It's not right. It's not going to help anybody or anything. And that's not trauma healing. Walking around on a street yelling obscenities at people is not how you deal with trauma. Just go talk to some psychologists about it, right? That's not how it works. So, you know, it might feel great, but okay, great. Knock yourselves out. I'm not telling anybody not to do it. Go knock yourself out. But that's not how you end Scientology. The things that you do to end a cult are not done in front of a camera for the most part, right? We're talking about legislation, public policy, changing the law, in other words, um, enforcing the law, getting law enforcement or governments on board to prosecute. You know, Alex, uh, for example, is doing some great work on this over in the UK, getting the uh, MPs and government involved in, um, you know, kind of what's what's the word way decrying scientology right like like actually calling for its investigation at a formal government level is what's on the line right now over in the uk like there's really serious good motion forward against the church of scientology being forwarded by what alex is doing out there and he didn't accomplish that by yelling in the streets outside the house of parliament he actually made personal contacts and did the work and provided the data and gave the evidence and got things happening. That's what you do. So, you know, people, I, I guess, can have something about, oh, Chris is against trauma healing. No, I'm not. I, no, I'm not. But I don't think going and yelling obscenities at people on the street is, is trauma healing. So, you know, call that controversial, but that's my take on it. Um, and that's what I can say about that. Um, okay. And there we go. That's what I wanted to say about that. Um, okay. 
Yes. Okay. We're not going to get into anything more on that. <laughs> okay, good. Um, so I think with that happy note, I think we'll start wrapping up here today. I want to thank you guys for coming around and, um, and answering uh, or giving me those questions. Bo, you're welcome for that. I hope it helped. Um, so on that happy note, let's wrap up. I Let's see here. Watch for the show with Alex tomorrow. I'm going to be out of town for the next few days. I'm off social media, like I said, so kind of going to be incognito, I guess. But you will see me back here on Thursday, uh, 1 o'clock Denver time, Mountain Time, for the tone scale video. Oh, okay, let's do this thing. And on that happy note, bye-bye, um, everybody. Oh, have a great weekend, all of you, right? Uh, thanks for coming around on this. Bye-bye.